This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Senator Tammy Duckworth always knew she wanted to be a mom, but things just kept getting in the way of that plan. She was a helicopter pilot, but in the military, if you get pregnant, you're grounded for six months. So she focused on her career. Then, after a few years of climbing the ranks, she decided it was time to try. But that's when she was deployed to Iraq. So the plan was to try when she returned. But on November 12, 2004, the Black Hawk helicopter Senator Duckworth was piloting was shot down. She lost both of her legs and spent the next year recovering. Then she went through a decade-long fertility struggle that began with her being told by a doctor she was just too old. We get into that long road, the pregnancy loss, the IVF, the struggle, that led to her having her first daughter at 46 and her second at 50. And by the way, that made her the first sitting senator ever to give birth. And when she brought her 10-day-old daughter to the Capitol to vote, Miley became the first ever baby allowed in the Senate chamber. How did she hold up? She slept through the whole thing. She's like, it's a non-event. She slept slept through it? She slept through it. Well, I made sure to give her a little milk before we got here. So she's in her little milk sleep. It meant so much to be able to cast a vote as a new mom and be able to do my job and take care of my baby at the same time. Senator Duckworth has become the voice for moms in Washington, focusing on everything from paid leave following pregnancy loss to airports having places to pump. In this episode, Senator Duckworth talks to me about the benefits of becoming a mom later in life, doing four injections a day while campaigning on the road, going to work the day after a miscarriage, and why we need more moms in the government. Ladies, are you listening? This is Me Becoming Mom, where we talk to famous women you know and love all about their extraordinary journeys to motherhood. I'm Zoe Ruderman from People. Earlier this year, you introduced the Support Through Loss Act, um, the legislation that would give people the right to take time off after a pregnancy loss, as well as things like unsuccessful IVF, adoption, surrogacy. I'm curious why this was so important to you. Well, uh, two things. One, I uh, experienced loss. I experienced um, a miscarriage after many failed rounds of IVF and a successful birth of my older daughter, but a miscarriage uh, uh, in trying to conceive my second child. Uh, And then also in my office, I have a policy of what I call passion projects, where I tell my staff, what's the point of working for a Senate office? If you can't advocate for something that is an issue that is a passion of yours, and it could be anything from youth soccer to domestic violence. And one of my staff members had also suffered a miscarriage and she came to me and she said, I'd like to work on something that has to do with helping families recover with pregnancy loss. And I said, I'm with you all the way. And we took it and ran with it. Well, I love that. So you had tweeted at one point that the road to parenthood isn't always easy. Tell me about where your road to parenthood began. When did you know you wanted to be a mom? Well, I had put off being a mom during the height of my military career, um, being pregnant means that you can't fly. You, you get grounded for at least six months pre-birth of the child and then, and then for a while after the birth of the child. So 
I just kept putting off having my children. Uh, and then uh, when I was finally ready after I had had my command time and I was going to go into a staff role and it was the time, uh, my husband and I talked about it and we said, oh, maybe this now is the time to try. I was 34 at the time. Um, I got deployed to Iraq. And then, so we we're like, okay, well, maybe when I came back from deployment, um, we'll try then. And then, of course, I was wounded. And then I spent all this time in recovery. By the time we started to try to, I was in a place where I could try to start a family. Um, I was 40 and uh, uh, tried for two years and, you know, talked with my gynecologist. And she said, you know, professional women, we, we put off our fertility for our careers, for our profession. And so we find ourselves um, in our 40s struggling to conceive. And so um, that began 10 years of trying, well, like six years of trying to conceive. And many cycles of IVF later, I finally had my first daughter at 46. When you were flying, you mentioned that like, if you get pregnant, you're grounded. And so you made the decision to not get pregnant and to delay that. I also read that you don't like having it referred to as a helicopter accident. It was a helicopter attack. Yeah, it wasn't an accident. They were aiming. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was very much on purpose. Um, so when you went through that and in the recovery and sort of had that before and after moment, was there a time when you thought this might leave me unable to have children? Did you think about that in the moment? Did you ask the doctors about that? I did ask about that, but I really was not wounded in my abdomen area at all because um, I was well protected with the armor. So they had always said everything's fine. We sort of touched on it in there and they were just worried about my limbs, which is where my injuries were. Um, it was funny because it wasn't until later when I was going through IVF um, and we were having problems that it was brought up. One of the questions was asked was like, well, how often were you x-rayed? And, it, you know, I was x-rayed every other day, at least for months. So I received a lot of radiation at Walter Reed as part of the treatment for my war wounds. And so, um, you know, we don't know whether it's age, we don't know whether it's x-rays or combination of everything. So how long after trying without intervention did you decide to do IVF? So it was like six months of us trying on our own before I went to my gynecologist at the VA facility. And so she had me wait a year. She said, you know, just try a full year. And if that doesn't work, then I'll refer you. Um, and so about 18 months after we've been trying, I was referred to a partner institution because the VA did, at the time did not have infertility services. And they still, it's very, still very limited. The VA will now pay for some of it, but you still have to go to a partner institution. And every VA hospital is partnered with a major teaching university. And I've gone to this other hospital on a regular basis to get mammograms, you know, never occurred to me, you know, this is the, one of the leading institutions. And I was referred for fertility services and I was 42, almost 43. And, and the doctor at this institution didn't even bring me into the examination room. She just met with me in the, in the waiting room. And she said, well, you know, you're just, you're just too old. Nothing is going to help you here. You have a less than 5% chance of conceiving. And why don't you just go home and enjoy your husband? Wow. What was your response? I was just blown away because I thought that IVF would work. And she's like, well, no, you know, the, the fertility treatment said that we have for you. Just, you know, it would still be a 5% chance of success. So did you consider not going down that path and going home and just enjoying your husband? I believed her. I believe this doctor. This is a doctor at a world-class teaching university hospital. And I sort of was stunned. My husband loved the idea of, you know, enjoy my husband. <laughs> um, um, 
so, you know, and I was at the time a congresswoman, I was really busy and, you know, and um, I was probably a few months later uh, at a women in leadership event when I got asked a question of work-life balance. I said, well, I don't have work-life balance. I just work because I don't have a family. And I guess it's too late now for me to start one. Uh, and uh, one of the women there came up to me afterwards. I've never met her before. She's like, you're not too old. You need to go see this doctor. And I just like, I blew her off a little bit, you know, and, 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 so, but she persisted for six months and she finally got me to go. And I went to Northwestern university and I went, I met with the doctor there and he's like, who told you that you couldn't conceive that you're too old. And I told him when he goes, Oh, it's very typical of Catholic institutions. And it was like being punched in the face. And it occurred to me, Oh my God, that is a Catholic institution. He goes, they don't provide many forms of, of fertility treatment that are considered you know, IVF that are considered that the Catholic church is, is opposed to. Oh, that's so upsetting. She didn't say, well, you're at this facility and we can't perform those treatments, but you might want to go somewhere else. No, she didn't say that. She said, there's just no options for you. And I remember thinking, what an idiot I was. How dumb am I? So you go to this new doctor who is open and encouraging, and do you start the IVF process right away? So he takes me through the whole thing, everything from, you know, starting off just with trying to see if there was any issues with me, and then starting off with something as simple as giving me a little pill to increase my egg production. Um, And then he just, what he said to me was like, if you will let me go through this systematically step by step, and we will increase in complexity of the treatment until we get to the point where you're pregnant you will get pregnant. You will have a child, but we will get you there as long as you're willing to go through it step-by-step. Step. Cause I want you to see that we've tried everything. 18 months later, I have my daughter. At this point, you're a Congresswoman. Are you doing shots in your office? Is your staff helping you with the injections? Are you doing it on the road? What is that like? I am doing it on the road. I'm campaigning for re-election. I am giving myself shots morning, noon, and night. And because of my wartime injuries, I had to do, um, blood thinners as well. So I was giving myself probably four shots a day. You know, I I counted out all up between the two daughters and all of the IVF cycles. I probably did four years of shots every day (laughs) of like three or four injections a day for about four years. So how many cycles of retrievals did you have to go through before you were able to do a transfer? Um, I went through at least four or five before um, uh, uh, we were successful. And I had Abigail. Um, and she was one of two viable embryos. What was that pregnancy like for you? You were working through the whole thing. I was working through the whole thing. I was on, you know, I still injecting myself because of uh, uh, my injuries. I, I had to be on a blood thinner the entire time and, you know, trying to do the best that I could to be as healthy as I could, but I'm still flying back and forth twice a week between Chicago and, and Washington and, and, and keeping up, you know, the schedule as much as I can. And it was hard. Um, Life on the road, I mean, I don't always eat on a regular schedule. And I'm, I mean, at this point, I'm a 46-year-old pregnant lady, you know, <laughs> trying to stay healthy. Uh, it was challenging. But I'm so much more fortunate than most women who don't control their own schedule, who are not their own boss the way I was as, as a congressman and as a senator. Um, there were times when I was like, guys, I just can't. I, I can't move. I, I felt that way more with my second pregnancy than my first, where there were just days when, you know, I'd be like, I physically am not able to even sit up and do this. I, I need to go take a nap for two hours and then I'm happy to get on the phone. Yeah. So tell me about your birth plan for Abigail. I believe you had a C-section. I did. 
I did. Um, uh, well, it was funny because uh, my obstetrician was like, so we're going to go ahead and schedule you for cesarean, right? And I said, well, can't I go ahead and give birth naturally? He said, well, we could. Do you want to do you want to do that? I said, yeah, I would like to. I would like to try to give birth naturally to her. And he goes, oh, does that mean you don't want an epidural? I was like, oh, oh, hell no. I, heck no. <laughs> Let me tell you, I've been in a lot of pain in my life. Um, I want the painkillers, but I still would like to deliver naturally. And I, I was in labor for 36 hours and then she got wet. She had her arms above her head. And, and so I labored for a day and a half. And then they finally said, we, we have to do an emergency cesarean. And by that point, I was so exhausted. I just cried. Um, he's like, well, we have to do it. And, and I think I just cried from exhaustion. And I tried so hard and I just couldn't make it happen. <laughs> but she was wedged, you know, in my pelvis and she wasn't coming up naturally. So I had to have the cesarean. So tell me about the first moment you saw Abigail and held her. I mean, it was, it was amazing. She was just, you know, her legs up like a frog on my chest. And um, I was having a little bit of a hard time breathing, but um, it was just wonderful. And then later when she, they once I got through recovery and they, they put her back on my chest, it was just the most wonderful thing in the world. Do you remember the first thing you said to her? Um, you know, just hi angel. I always said that she, you know, when she was in my stomach still, when she was, when she was in utero, so I used to talk to her and, thank her for being the angel that decided to let me be her mom. And I told her, her tell her this day that she's an, an angel from heaven. Her middle name is, is Okalani and it's a Hawaiian name. It, it means gift of heaven. And she really is an angel that decided, you know, she picked me to be her mom, which I'm just so grateful for. That's beautiful. I love that. Did you and your husband always know that you wanted more than one? No, we didn't know. Um, uh, but once we had Abigail, and us being older parents, uh, uh, you know, I, I I loved being pregnant with Abigail. Um, and I, I wanted to be pregnant again. And I wanted another child. And I wanted her to have a sibling. Um, as older parents, you, you know, I, I don't want, if something happened to the both of us, for her to be alone in the world. Um, and so uh, we decided to try again. And so what was that process like the second time around? Well, the, all the IVF process and the injections and all that, you know, at this point, that's his old hat. Um, it was a harder pregnancy. Um, I was just physically more exhausted. But um, by this point, I'm in the Senate. So um, things are a little bit different. Going through the IVF and trying to conceive while I was on the campaign trail for Senate in a very um, contentious Senate campaign was really tough. At one point, I actually break down. Uh, crying um, and my chief of staff and and my my pollster uh, who the lady who does my polling just you know gone through I you know she and I you know, we had a long conversation about work life balance is a lie there's no such thing yeah there's no balance we as professional as work women who work outside the home need to just be honest with ourselves about that and stop trying for the perfect and and go for the eighty percent solution and that really helped and um, yeah it was lovely. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? 
it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Senator Duckworth continued to campaign while going through IVF treatments and caring for Abigail. Talk about a triple whammy of stress and exhaustion. She won the election, in a landslide, by the way, but her dream of a second child was still out of reach. She and her husband transferred another embryo, but it didn't take, so they had to start again. And then they got to the point where they did another embryo transfer, and this time it took. And the second time that we tried, I was pregnant, and I went in at the six weeks mark, and there was a heartbeat, and I was thrilled, and he said, okay, come back at nine weeks. You know, at nine weeks, I'm going to sign you off, and you can go over to your uh, the OB office, and then you're out of my hair. Um, and at nine weeks, I went, and there was no heartbeat. And that's when I realized I'd lost a baby. And then if you want to continue to have children and start the cycle again as soon as possible, because by now I'm 48, going on to 49, um, we have to do a DNC so that you're ready. Yeah. I had multiple DNCs and multiple pregnancy losses and then went through IVF. So a lot of this is ringing very true to me. And, you know, one thing that stood out to me about your story is this idea of people go through a miscarriage or a failed IVF round and then just have to keep on going about their day and going to work. And that was very true for me. So what was it like after you went in for that nine week scan and you get this devastating news? Were you able to take time or were you like, back at work? And how did you manage that? No, I, I was scheduled. My day was full. I went to the doctor in the morning, like I always did. And that whole afternoon, I had back to back meetings and things that I had to go to. So there was no break I had to. And I'm a, I'm a public official. So I was going to ribbon cuttings and giving speeches and talking to folks and inspecting, you know, hospitals and all of that. So right back on my schedule. And um, yeah, and even even, you know, when I had the DNC, I was able to be on couch rest the rest of that day, but I was still on the phone all afternoon. You know, even though I we, we cleared my, my my calendar for the day, I was still on the phone. Um, you know, there was no resting. You just kept on going. And, it, you know, it's inhumane. It's inhumane. It is. So how did you, did you just compartmentalize and then allow yourself to like break down later that day? I mean, that's what I did. I'm curious kind of how you managed I was pretty numb. I told my husband and then I called my chief of staff and I told her that um, I'd miscarried and she just started crying. And once she started crying, I started crying and it was very cathartic. But then I still had to like pull myself together and go back to work um, because I couldn't, you know, I didn't have a good excuse to cancel and, and people were, were depending on me to show up to do my job. I didn't want to go, you know, cancer events and tell people it's because I've had a miscarriage because nobody knew I was going through, you know, it's, it's a very personal experience. And, and, and people say, well, you know, if you have, why I wanted to write this legislation is like, you were like, well, you know, you uh, just, just tell your employer that, you know, you're, you're going through this and that you need the time off. Well, not every employer is as um, supportive of IVF and not every employer understands. And this is a deeply personal issue you should be able to take the time. So after you had been through a miscarriage, um, for me, it was really hard to kind of have that like happy bubble of pregnancy burst and like every scan, every appointment is a little bit nerve wracking. 
what was that pregnancy like emotionally for you outside of what it felt like physically? It was, it was scary. I, I, I was like, am I doing enough? Am I not doing enough? Should I exercise? Should I not exercise? I mean, I did Pilates with Abigail all the way until, I mean, I was willing to do my third trimester before I finally stopped. Um, and that really helped with my recovery. But then I was, you know, doing all my exercises and am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? Am I stressing the baby? You know, just really, really scared the whole time on pins and needles. You know, am I doing right by this child? Maybe I have no, no right having a baby at 49 years old. Who am I to jeopardize this child out of my own selfishness as an older woman wanting to have a child? And so all of that, you go through all of that, right? Am I, am I setting, you know, am I hurting this child because my body can't give her everything that she needs and, and you know, all of that stuff. And, and my doctors were like, no, you're fine. You're doing everything right. You're healthy. Your baby's healthy. You know, the mom guilt starts even before the baby's born, apparently. <laughs> starts before the baby is born. Yeah. Did you aim for a VBAC with Miley or did you know that you wanted to have a planned cesarean? Um, I was a planned cesarean, but she came early. I was planned for a Thursday and Monday morning at like 5 a.m. I started contractions. And from when I felt the first contraction, to when I was in active labor, it was 15 minutes. So I had the first contraction and then within 15 minutes, they were coming um, one minute apart and they took me into the nearest emergency room and I had the baby within 30 minutes of, of getting into the hospital room. They're like, we can't give you an epidural. We can't give you a condom. We can't give you anything because the baby's coming now. So you ended up having her vaginally. Wow. Wow. So you've experienced it all. With no, with no painkillers, like really natural. I wasn't trying for it. She just, she, she, you know, if you ever make 90, she's, this is how she is. Your girls clearly have their own ideas about how they want to do things in this world. I'm curious when you talk to your girls about your road to motherhood and you describe how you came to be their mother, how do you talk about it with them? That I waited a very long time for them to be born. And I, and I went through a lot. And that um, we had to get doctors to help me. And um, we were really, really lucky that there were really smart scientists along the way who helped us um, be able to get pregnant. And um, same with Miley. She's too young to understand right now. We just literally a couple of weeks ago talked about how when she used to be in mommy's tummy. And, um, and, and she's very fascinated by that idea right now. So you have had a lot of firsts, obviously, um, being the first senator to give birth when you're in office is pretty major. What was that like? How did that feel to have that first to your name? I wasn't trying to be. <laughs> I think the problem is that, you know, in the 200 plus years that we've been a nation that we that, that it's taken this long. You know what that means is this place has been run by a bunch of old white men, you know, and that's just the way it is. And so. Right now, there are as many men named John as there are persons of color in the United States Senate. It's crazy, right? And, and we don't have enough women in the Senate. It just tells us that we have not had diversity in the Congress of the United States, in the House or in the Senate, that it's taken this long. I was the 10th woman to ever give birth in the House of Representatives. So there's not been that many in the House either. Well, hopefully many more to come after you. I hope so. Well, we don't reflect the country. Until I gave birth and started breastfeeding was when I realized that we needed lactation rooms in airports. Um, if you don't have the people who have those lived experiences wandering the halls of Congress and, and understanding, you know, the challenges uh, that people are facing right now, then our laws and our government would never truly reflect the American people. 
So, you know, technically I was a geriatric pregnancy and you hear a lot about the risks and, you know, the, the negatives, but what do you see as the positive to becoming a mom in your forties? And then when you're 50, what's the good side of that? Well, for my children, I'm way more calm than I was in my twenties. <laughs> and also, you know, they, they're, we, we are much more able to support our children and give them more. So we are, you know, we are financially in a better place than we were in our twenties. Um, we can afford more childcare, um, you know, and, and so they are children of privilege by being born to, to my husband and myself at this stage in our lives. So when we are a little bit further along in our careers, for me, um, it's made me younger. You know, I, I get to hang out with the other moms. I tell people I'm a new mom, not a young mom, but I get to hang out with the young moms. And, and, and so I feel like it's a rejuvenation for me and I love it. You know, I, I come home at the end of the day, like to, you know, today I'm here at the Senate and we're, we're having lots of contentious fights and everything. But when I go through those doors, you know, it's mommy, 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 mommy. They don't care that I'm a Senator. They don't care. You know, um, it's a joy every day. The week I spoke to Senator Duckworth, negotiations were happening in Washington about how much, or even if, paid family leave should be included in President Biden's spending bill. It's a cause that she has been championing for years. The United States is the only industrialized country that does not have paid family leave. And at the time of recording this episode, we don't know whether 12 weeks or four weeks or zero weeks will be in the final proposal. But what we do know is that moms across the country are speaking out. One mom in particular posted something to Twitter on the matter, and that tweet went viral. And so the tweet says, at four weeks postpartum, I was sleeping three non-consecutive hours a night, breastfeeding every two hours for at least 30 minutes a session, so about six hours a day, and bleeding through everything I wore. If men did this, the whole f***ing world would be structured around parental leave. This is Katie Gutierrez, the author of that tweet. We caught up with her and a few other moms to learn more about their experience going back to work soon after having a baby. Mothers are a huge part of our economy. And so to put us in the position of having to to choose between home and working is fundamentally wrong. It takes us, I mean, it takes us so far back. I remember many days that started with tears because it was figuring out, you know, do I send the email that I need to send for work or do I feed my child? You know, one is going to help me take care of my child in the long run because it's going to provide my income, but also the immediacy of her needing to eat (laughs) is pretty important. And she always came first, which meant that I always came last. I don't get any paid leave. I'm I'm my own boss, which is wonderful, but at the same time, it brings a lot of stress with it. I decided I would just take two weeks off. You know, it's not something that I would recommend for most women. You're still bleeding at that point, or at least I was. You're wearing this massive pad all the time. Your baby needs you all the time. So I would be doing meetings and I would just have my son strapped to my chest. And if he would start to fuss, I would just nurse him. It's incredibly stressful. It's absolutely outrageous to think that four weeks is enough. It's outrageous that we don't have any nationally mandated paid leave as it is, that we expect 
birthing parents to recover in four weeks when our first follow-up appointment with our OB isn't even until six weeks. And to think that women are forced or birthing parents are forced to make these sorts of choices to, to either give up their career or leave their newborns at this extremely vulnerable stage in both of their relationships. I was in tears every day for six or seven months because I didn't have the time to set myself and my family up for success by even having a few months of, of paid leave. You know, I had more doctor's appointments because I wasn't healing as quickly because I was on my feet and I was go, go, going and I wasn't sleeping, which totally normal for a new mom to not be sleeping. I remember lying in bed and just crying because all I wanted to do was just take a shower, take a breath, be able to sleep, something, but I couldn't because she was entirely dependent on me. Newborns are really unpredictable, so you never know if you're gonna be stuck dealing with a crying fit or an unhappy baby when you're supposed to be on a call with several people. Theoretically, women should and parents should be able to spend that time just focusing on their baby. You know, I think that I had it pretty easy compared to a number of birthing parents who have C-sections and infections, you know, with their sutures and, and stitches with, from their episiotomies and all sorts of complications that I didn't have. And yet it was still so hard. My rest milk supply was incredibly affected by the amount of stress. And so it meant my baby seeing the doctor more. And so the resources that it ended up needing to, to pull from was even greater than it would be had I just had paid family leave. There are so many issues. They're mental, they're emotional, they're physical. I, I think that until you experience them for yourselves or until we really start talking about them with each other, which to me feels fairly new about how open I think so many mothers are being about the complications after giving birth. And I think that we just need to keep telling these stories and hope that, again, we get that representation that can eventuate in some real change. That's it for this episode of Me Becoming Mom. Next week, we're delivering another beautiful story, this one from Padma Lakshmi. She talks to me about why her pregnancy got international attention, being bedridden for three months before giving birth. And yes, we talk about pregnancy cravings. I remember being up by Central Park and I was really hungry and I just walked across the street from Bergdorf's and I ordered two hot dogs because I knew I wasn't going to be satisfied with one and I doused it with a ton of mustard and relish and I just sat down on the grass and I had all this jewelry on and I was dressed in all black and I just looked like this black beetle. I had a real beetle body, you know, and it was wonderful. I loved it. It was the only time in my life since puberty I haven't sucked my stomach in, so it felt great. This podcast is produced by people in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Andy Cubis, Jason Mack, Brian Rivers, Eliza Sessler, and Suzanne Semeloff. Our executive producers are Lauren Mickler, David Flumenbaum, and me, Zoe Ruderman. Thank you so much for listening.